the need for an adversarial mindset in cyber defense, a cautionary tale of cross-border fraud, and some informed wisdom on mitigating the 2020 election cyber threat. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. According to Jeff Moss, founder of the DEF CON and Black Hat Conferences, there's still a long way to go in terms of defense teams truly understanding the mindset of an attacker. That was one of the takeaways from the recent Black Hat Europe conference held in London. ISMG's executive editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, was there, and he filed this report. If they're going to have any chance of succeeding, defenders must know the tools and tactics being used against them. That was one of the main takeaways from last week's Black Hat Europe conference in London, which featured an opening keynote speech from Amanda Rousseau. She's an offensive security engineer on the red team at Facebook. In military operations terminology, red teams attack and blue teams defend. But in the cybersecurity realm, the reality is that everyone is on the same side, Rousseau said. Although she did add, for those of you who are actual black hats in the audience, this might not apply to you. This concept of applying an adversarial mindset to improve defenses isn't new. Arguably, it's that very ethos that led to the launch of the DEF CON conference 23 years ago, followed by its more corporate companion, the Black Hat Conference, in 1997. It's definitely not new, but I think what's happening is it's getting more currency, people are paying more attention to it, and it's spawning, it used to maybe be just in the maybe network attack and defense, and it was application security or protecting yourself, your servers. But now it seems that it's, uh, it's in policy. That's Jeff Moss, the creator and founder of the DEF CON and Black Hat conferences. By policy, Moss says the Wassener arrangement debate over export controls on surveillance tools that happened a couple of years ago was a watershed moment. Policymakers were struggling to come to grasp with how they could limit the use of intrusion software. But their initial attempts looked set to rob defenders and researchers of their ability to use penetration testing tools or even to share malware samples with each other. Those debates aside, Moss says that the need to think like your attacker is a cornerstone of the information security discipline. This idea of the adversarial mindset, it stems from people who started an attack and moved to defense were stunned to find how crazy the defense people were. They were really smart. They just weren't doing things that really mattered. So how crazy in the sense of everything like was a problem? disconnected from reality. In the sense, so from the attacker's perspective, the defenders are building crazy castles that have nothing to do, not, not nothing, but very little connected to reality. So the attackers would be like, well, why are you doing that? You, you've built this crazy memory protection system, but all I do is edit this registry entry and I'm in. Why don't you protect that? And through those conversations, the defenders are like, oh, well, the bad guys never tell us how they're getting in. The governments that know never tell us how they're getting in. The manufacturers who know where all the vulnerabilities are, they're not really telling us what it is. So we're kind of left on our own to fend for ourselves and use our own creative energies and flip some options on some security panels, but we don't actually really know how it is really going to change things. What has been a watershed for defenders, however, has been large-scale Digital forensics firms, such as Mandiant and CrowdStrike, among others, publicly releasing the details of their investigations into hack attacks launched by cybercrime gangs as well as nation-state attackers. They started writing reports 
and others, but started writing reports like, this is how bad guys are really behaving. And so if you didn't have a sophisticated security team, you could at least start to learn what the bad guys are doing. And so I think we're in this great alignment where we're finally starting to focus our energies on the things that actually make things more secure, not the things that the defenders believe you know, are making things more secure. Thankfully, channeling an adversarial mindset is becoming easier than ever, although arguably it's needed now more than ever before. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. If you think financial fraud to the tune of $200,000 would get the attention of authorities, think again. That's the lesson from Sergio Neves, a physician in Manhattan who discovered firsthand that cross-border crime can quickly result in dead ends once it crosses those borders. ISMG's managing editor, security and technology, Jeremy Cook, got to speak with Dr. Neves about the fraud and the follow-up. With more on this cautionary tale, here he is. Sergio Norvez is a kidney doctor based in Manhattan. In September, he sought out a high-interest certificate of deposit. That's where the trouble started. He was defrauded of $200,000 by a fake banking website, and his money is now gone. Since then, Norvez and I have been trying to figure out who is behind the scam and locate his money. But his case illustrates the legal complexities involved in investigating cross-border internet crime, the many privacy laws and regulations involved, and one core problem. There's so much internet crime, law enforcement can't address all of it. To get a feel for how these kinds of scams work, Narvez spoke on the phone and emailed with someone who was purportedly from Vision Bank in Iowa. Here's Sergio Narvez. So he had a he had no foreign accent, complete American accent. Oh, really? He sounded like somebody that you would picture sitting on a desk at a bank in the Midwest, honestly, you know. Not super personable, you know, amicable, you know. Narvez agreed to invest $200,000 in a CD. He wired the money from New York to an ING account in Poland, which was held by a Lithuanian payments company. Narvez acknowledges that wiring money to Poland for a bank based in Iowa should have been a big red flag. From there, his money went to a DBS bank branch in Hong Kong. We don't know where it went from there or if it's still in that account. Narvez has filed complaints with four law enforcement agencies in three countries. That includes the FBI, Lithuanian police, the New York City Police Department, and Hong Kong's police force. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear any agency is investigating. Alana Morishat is a professor of cybersecurity and behavior at Western Sydney University. She says fraud cases are often passed over. Law enforcement doesn't triage these cases. If it involves a, a jurisdiction outside their own, they tend to do nothing about it. The FBI and UK Metropolitan Police are the exception. That's not surprising given the scale of internet crime as well. Last year, the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center recorded more than 350,000 complaints worldwide. The reported losses were $2.7 billion. Those losses are likely only a small slice of the true scale of internet crime, as the ICE-3C reports are voluntarily filed by victims. U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission warned in October about the exact type of scam that Narvez fell prey to. The scammer set up simple websites impersonating known bank brands and advertised above-market interest rates for certificates of deposits. While the money moves overseas, there are strong signs that the criminal group behind it has people or is contracting services within the U.S. 
That includes U.S.-based website hosting and a call center in Florida. All those would be easy touch points for U.S. law enforcement to begin probing. Our inquiries to banks and payment services involved in the transfers of his money haven't been that fruitful. The Lithuanian payment service, Paysera, which is a completely legitimate company, said it couldn't reveal the name of its client who received the money due to the General Data Protection Regulation. That's the European Union's strict privacy law. In Hong Kong, DBS said it was bound by banking secrecy and confidentiality regulations. Ironically, in this case, that's protecting a criminal client. Both Paysera and DBS, however, do say they've suspended the suspect accounts. But all this has made it difficult to find out where his money ended up or who is the account holder. For now, the trail ends in Hong Kong. I did some more technical investigation around domain names and website code. It turned up some thin signs that point to Russia, such as the registration of domain names at reg.ru, but the Whois information didn't turn up much as it was mostly private. Phone numbers for scammy websites are ever-changing and rarely that useful. The scammers did register some domains through Wix.com, which is based in San Francisco. But again, there's strict privacy rules around domain name registrations, so I didn't expect to get that much. As a journalist, I can ask for information, but it's entirely up to an entity whether it wants to share. But law enforcement agencies could serve binding legal requests to service providers that compel a specific entity to turn over the data. With Norvez's case, there are plenty of threads to investigate, even within the U.S., such as Wix.com and the call center in Florida. Who paid or contracted for those services? Where are they based? Is there a possibility that U.S.-based cyber criminals are involved? The answers to those questions could shed light on a group that has likely defrauded many more people in the U.S. than just Narvez. That is, if anyone wants to ask the questions. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Finally, myself and the ISMG crew have made it to the end of another busy year of roundtables and summits. Leaving the best till last, we held our Fraud and Security Summit in Washington, D.C. last week with a typically stellar lineup of who's who in the cybersecurity world. Heading into 2020, it's unavoidable to note that election security is front and centre. And the keynote speaker for our summit was something of an expert on this subject matter. Retired Brigadier General Francis X. Taylor, former US Ambassador-at-Large and Coordinator for Counterterrorism, and currently serving as a member of the Advisory Board for US Cyberdome. ISMG's SVP of Editorial, Tom Field, got to sit down with Brigadier General Taylor at the summit and asked him about the state of election threat from cyber attacks going into 2020. Here's an excerpt of that conversation. Well, yes, I was on the front row of uh, that event in 2016, and I think the lesson we learned is we have to treat our election infrastructure as critical infrastructure, and the people that are leading DHS uh, cybersecurity and infrastructure, infrastructure security agency have really done a great job in the last three years of building confidence among those within our country that are responsible for uh, conducting elections, particularly the secretaries of state across the country, and are now penetrating into the election infrastructure with information about the nature of the threat to help the 8,000 or so jurisdictions that conduct elections to understand what's at risk and what they can do to protect themselves. So as we look toward 2020, what are the threats that you're most concerned about? I think the threat that we saw in 2016. I, I think our adversaries have learned that they can be very effective in using uh, cyber, cyber penetrations to impact their adversary at a, uh, us at, 
an asymmetrical level and that they will do it again. And our challenge is to get people to understand what the nature of that threat is, how it's manifesting itself, and what we can do to mitigate it so that people have confidence in our election and the results of those elections. So for someone with your military background, this is a real sea change in how the adversary approaches the United States. Indeed. Well, we have the best military in the world. We've demonstrated our ability to reach out and touch every part of the globe uh, militarily, and they understand that. Uh, Russia, Russia's military is not capable of taking us on mano a mano. Uh, China is building a military, but it's not there yet. And so the way to undermine the U.S. is to, to use the asymmetrical capability, which, by the way, they uh, use to control their own country. So it's not just they have to get good at asymmetrical warfare against the United States, it's how they control their populations and tamp down uh, dissent uh, within their own countries. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.